1: Uh, welcome to Tell Show. It is Friday, folks. It's been a trying, news-heavy week, but we have made it to Friday to the end of the week. It is February the 25th. I hope you are well wherever you and yours are listening and or watching the program. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome to tell. A lot of noise to turn down today. Going to be real heavy on uh, Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin and the illegal invasion, war of aggression he is waging in Ukraine. Uh, returning guest, Cassandra Shand a Young Voices contributor, a couple of weeks ago, she was on this program. We were speculating, we were analyzing, we were trying to figure out where this might go and what might happen. We're going to do a little bit of accountability, what we got right, what we got wrong, what we were on target with, what we weren't, what we missed, what we saw coming. We'll talk about all that with Cassandra Shan a little bit later in the program. Also a story of at least one writer and commentator who took a little accountability for being wrong, put out a public statement. We'll get into that. In the program, we have a story about a young man whose mom paid him to stay off social media, and she paid him out for staying off social media for the entirety of his teenage years. But first, let's start right here. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Ukraine and Russia, and we want to discuss and contrast the leadership of those two countries. Uh, One thing we talk about on this program a lot is when we have a hot and heavy issue, look at the leadership. Let's compare and contrast the leadership of Ukraine to Vladimir Putin for a minute, because I think it's telling of uh, the difference between a free people and a bloodthirsty dictator. Um, the ambassador to the UN for Ukraine, if you've never watched this clip, it's all over social media, you can find it. But he has the Russian ambassador sitting across from him. And when he has his turns to speak, the Russian, the Ukraine ambassador looks the Russian ambassador right in the eye. And he looks at him and says, there is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, and he advocated strongly for his country. Leadership, stamina, courage. Let's talk about two very famous people, the Kalitsko brothers, championship boxing, world championship boxing, both of them in the Boxing Hall of Fame. Vitaly Kalitsko is the Marikiev, the capital city that is now under attack, and many fear might be under siege very, very soon. Him and his brother have both come out with statements vitaly said quote i don't have another choice klitschko said when asked by itv's good morning britain i have to do that i would fight we will defend ourselves with all our might right and fight for the freedom and democracy he wrote on his linkedin tuesday uh his brother for his part put out a statement on twitter saying quote no democracy without democrats putin made it clear that he wants to destroy the ukrainian state and the sovereignty of its people words are followed by missiles and tanks destruction and death come upon us That's it. Blood will mix with tears. And he goes on to say the Ukraine people are strong and it will remain true to itself in this terrible ordeal. A people longing for sovereignty and peace. A people who consider the Russian people their brothers. I know that they basically do not want this war. This war against my country is not only the result of one man's madness, but also the result of years of weakness in Western democracies. This madness must be stopped now by stepping up to deterrence. Our government needs to say things loud and clear. You can do something by mobilizing and organizing human, huge demonstrations. Make your voice heard. Make the voice of democracy heard. Say it loud and clear that international law and democracy are under attack, that war is the greatest evil, and that life is sacred. The Kalichko brothers are multi-millionaires. They're some of the most famous athletes in the world, and yet they've decided to stay and fight for their country. And let's not forget also uh, President Zelensky. This is a man who was an actor. He actually played a role in a comedy about an average person who became the leader of a country. He's doing it in real life and he's rose to the occasion. He's shown backbone. He has shown courage. He has tried to rally his people. He has stood up. He has stood up against a dictator who has bended many lesser men to his will, but Zelensky hasn't been one of them. And as he shows up on TV to give updates, And he continues to try to rally his people. This is a man who needs support and he deserves our respect for the way he's carried himself. These are just a couple examples of the leadership we've seen out of Ukraine and of the Ukrainian people. Now contrast that to Vladimir Putin. Remember the days right before the invasion, they're in that big rotunda room, the big sitting dome inside the Kremlin and a parquet floor and the massive gulf of distance between Putin sitting up behind his desk and all the lackeys and ministers and all the people that are under him sitting at a great space away in chairs. I'm reading from the guardian. Uh, this is from Monday, the 21st. This is from right before quote, sitting alone at a desk in a grand column, Kremlin room, Vladimir Putin looked across at expansive parquet floor at his security council and asked if anyone wished to express an alternate opinion. He was met with silence. A few hours later, the Russian president appeared on state TV to give an angry, rambling lecture about Ukraine, a country that had Putin's telling had been, quote, a colony with a puppet regime. and had no historical right to resist Putin's double bill, which would immediately be followed by the signing of an agreement of Russian recognition to the two proxy states in the East Ukraine. And now we know the invasion about 30 hours after that. This was written before that occurred, just for the spacing here. It's likely to go down in history as one of Major's turning points. In his 22 years in counting rule over Russia, this was not a politician convening his team for discussions. This was a supreme leader marshalling his minions and ensuring collective responsibility for a decision that at minimum will change the security architecture of Europe and may well lead to a horrific war that consumes Ukraine. Putin appeared genuinely angry and passionate in his speech, which he almost certainly wrote himself, in a symbolic sign of his increasing isolation with no equals who can talk back to him or debate ideas. Putin has recently taken to meeting politicians, including his own ministers, across ostentatiously large tables, apparently as a COVID precaution. But at the Security Council meeting, when a long table for once would have seemed appropriate, Putin sat alone, surveyed his subordinates from an absurdly far away, as they squirmed awkwardly in chairs, waiting their turn to be grilled by the boss, from behind his desk. Frequently smirking, Putin listened one by one to his Security Council. The body contained some of the few people who have Putin's ear. But even some of them appeared overawed by the situation and nervous to fulfill their lines. Sergei Narinskin, the hawkish head of the Russian spy service, known for making aggressively anti-Western statements, stuttered uncomfortably as Putin grilled him on whether he supported the decision. Speak directly, Putin snapped at him twice. Eventually, when he was able to get the words out, Nariskin said he supported, quote, the LNR and DNR becoming part of Russia. Those are the two breakaway regimes or breakaway regions, quote unquote, breakaway because there's been interference there. But we won't get into that now. Putin told him that wasn't the subject of the discussion. It was only recognition being weighed up. Some suggested this might have been a carefully scripted encounter to show the West what other options might be available. But Narinsky's genuinely flustered expression suggested otherwise it is hard to tell whether or not putin had decided his plan for ukraine for months ago i think he has he's wanted it for 30 years we've had intelligence since at least november he had his mind made up back to the piece but it was certainly clear that decision on recognition had been taken well before this strange staged event many of putin's team give the impression of genuinely believing the propaganda narrative russia has built to justify its continuing aggression it sounded quite simply like a de- declaration of war And 30-some hours later, the tanks were rolling. What a contrast in leadership. The dictator alone, making people give homage to him, making them declare their allegiance to him and his idea of this insane, illegal war of aggression against the innocent party of Ukraine. Compare and contrast that to the noble and brave people that are trying to lead Ukraine, like the Kalinsko brothers, like Zelensky, the president, like their ambassador who stood at the UN and sat in front of the Russian ambassador to his face and called him a war criminal. It's easy to tell who the good guys and bad guys are here. All you have to do is watch their actions and listen to their words. I'm telling you there's something not right about Vladimir Putin beside the fact that we already knew he was evil and wicked. Perhaps he is in in in-game dictatorships that we have seen from so many dictators before where they're so isolated and they've had years and years and years of yes-men that they just completely lose track of reality and they go completely inside themselves. They take off all the shackles, they completely drop the mask and show everyone who they really are. That sure looks like what Vladimir Putin is doing. We should believe him and we should act accordingly. More her tell right after this. Now, let me see you go off like a bomb. <laughs> Welcome back to her, tell. Let's talk about how we're actually going to discuss and cover Ukraine, because it is confusing. Right now, what's going on is something that's called, uh, colloquially, the fog of war. There's a lot going on that we just can't see. Too many things happening at once. Too many things happening in smoke and dirt and fast-moving. There's also a lot of disinformation out there. One thing that happens when conflicts kick off is that social media gets flooded with images that are from past conflicts, Uh, They get flooded with images that aren't sourced. They're flooded with images from people on various sides who have agendas who are trying to push narratives. Obviously, the Russians are going to push a narrative that they have an invincible army that is steamrolling through the country. The Ukrainians are going to try to push a narrative that they're stopping the Russians and holding up well. What's the truth? It's going to be hard to tell. We need to maintain our bearing in how we handle our social media covering the story. Another thing we need to be careful about is just passing things on without thinking about it. Uh, We should start with the idea that we don't know very much about what's going on in Ukraine and work from there. Take a little extra time. Make sure what you're sending out is sourced. Make sure it is accurate to the best of our ability. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. Because, again, there's a lot of bad faith actors slinging a lot of stuff around. I would also recommend you avoid the play by play of what's going on. Uh, this isn't a sporting event. You're not going to be able to keep up in real time with everything that's going on. I know it's frustrating. I know everybody wants to be able to do that. It's a fast-moving, fluid situation, but there is no such thing as play-by-play like you're watching a football game. You're going to get little bits and pieces of information from all over. A lot of the reporters right now are centered around the cities or in their specific areas, and this is a big country, a lot of open space, a lot of stuff going on, It's going to be really hard to tell what's going on. So don't get wrapped up in the play-by-play. Try to stay with the bigger narratives. Don't get sucked into the minutiae that might skew your opinion. One other item about how we're going to cover this that we need to touch on. Uh, Western media, especially American media, really did not cover themselves in glory leading up to this thing. I strongly recommend you put in a good, healthy dose of overseas media. There's plenty of English speaking outlets overseas to give you a wider perspective. Doesn't mean they're not biased. Doesn't mean they don't have slants on stories, but you need that perspective. Get some BBC news, get some Sky News. Um, Overseas services like AEP, like Der Spiegel in Germany. They all have English language outlets. Follow them. Spread out your information, get wider perspective on what's going on than just the American media because the American media has a very specific business model and it's really not tooled for big overseas reporting like what's going on right now. There's great reporters doing great work. Follow the individual reporters that you know are good and sound and know what they're doing. A lot of discernment is going to be called for in covering the Ukraine and Russia story over the next few days and weeks and maybe even months, depending on how long this invasion goes. If you want to support Ukraine and the people of Ukraine who are under invasion in an illegal war of aggression by Vladimir Putin, that's a war crime. He's a war criminal now. We're going to to be very careful how we intake our media. So just a few pointers on how to actually cover and follow the story yourselves Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody else's word for it. Do your homework. Get good sources. Get good information. Don't overreact. Maintain your bearing and keep tabs on this very important story who is going to have ramifications for years to come. More Heard Tell right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell Show. She is back, uh, Cassandra Shand. Uh, We were on a couple of weeks ago talking about Ukraine and Russia and Putin and China and everything going on. You might have heard a few things have happened in that regard since then, so we're going to revisit it, see what we got right, see what we got wrong. Thrilled to have you back, my friend. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, she's another one of our great partners from Young Voices. Uh, She has those fancy degree things from Cambridge and the University of Chicago, And a little school called UCLA you might have heard of. Well documented. Uh, You've done a lot of studying before this. Let's just kind of zoom out for a second before we get back into Ukraine. You've done studying and writing on things like power structures and greater power dynamics. We we we've framed this whole thing as Russia versus NATO, and that's a big chunk of it. But what are some of the power dynamics involved here besides just that? Because we, we've got China involved, India's right there, Russia's right there, NATO and Europe, which are not the same thing, although everybody's kind of using those interchangeably right now. That's not accurate, and it's important to distinguish mm-hmm. those two things. And then, of course, America, uh, there's a lot of moving parts here. Just kind of give us the big picture power dynamics here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I think for I think one of the most important aspects about foreign policy is that no decision, whether that be inaction or action, is isolated. Everything has an immediate effect. Um, You might see the next day. You might see, I mean, a a year or two from now. Um, But right now, we have like Ukraine, Russia. That that's been like kind of like a a Soviet era issue um, prevalent since then. We have a lot of these uh, historical dramas in in, uh, the Asian region. We have. the U.S. still trying to retain its like post Cold War era dominance, um, and then um, around like the big three, big three players, right? China, U.S., Russia. You have a bunch of um, other states like India trying to kind of become maybe the next China, next America. Um, You have countries like Taiwan and Ukraine trying to retain sovereignty. And so I think you see a a big mix of these kind of like smaller players aiming for more power, middle powers trying to keep the power they have right now. And then uh, these large dominant powers trying to struggle and uh, maintain as much power as possible and eventually dominate the entire international system.
1: Yeah. And one of the things about foreign policy, I, I like to break things down to simple things because I'm a simple guy and I like simple concepts. The thing about foreign policy is if you're going to be effective in foreign policy, it has to be coherent and it has to be consistent. And when you're talking mm-hmm. about these power dynamics, I, one of the things is just real simple here is Vladimir Putin has had a plan for the better part of 25, 30 years on what he wants, how he wants to get there. And that's what he's doing now. And there's not that coherency in the Western countries or in the European countries. They're not coherent and they're not consistent. Part of that's because they're democratically elected and leadership rolls over. But some of it is just uh, fractured attention, like you said. That's just the simple dynamic that we overlook when we start talking about these things. And they're like, hey, this guy's got a plan. Nobody else does. And then we wonder why everybody's being reactionary. Well, there's why you're reactionary.
0: No, absolutely. I think um, something that sets the West apart is the fact that, well, you look at China. China has a very, very blatant long-term strategic outlook. It's planning 50 years ahead. Putin, maybe not so much. I think he's very much focused on Ukraine, Ukraine, um, just like kind of like Soviet era issues. But the U.S., I think that uh, we kind of suffer from a scatterplot foreign policy. We kind of just pick out whatever. Um, nothing is linear. And I, I um, I'm actually kind of frustrated. I think we kind of need some sort of foreign policy accountability at this point. I think that in this past year alone, I mean, we've seen a lot of um, really bad foreign policy errors and i think uh we're gonna be paying for them as a country for years to come um but we need some sort of system in place to just check ourselves i, I think that none of it we're doing right now is really making sense and i think that i mean this crisis itself like this should have been we knew about it for months we've known about we've, we've known about this invasion for a very long time again it's been a, it's an intelligence win but um it's a foreign policy failure on our part again
1: yeah talking to cassandra Shan from young voices and you brought it up. President Biden talked about it in his address uh, yesterday. He said, you know, we we've been saying this since November. They have. Uh, this is one of those things where the intelligence actually did work. Part of the problem was, though, a lot of people didn't believe it because of everything that's gone on in the past. And then the other half of it is, is you can know what they're going to do all the day long. But if you don't have any kind of mechanism to react or actually a willpower to react, it doesn't matter part of that accountability you're talking about is we're just not learning lessons anymore. We're not learning the lessons from Afghanistan. We didn't learn the lessons from the war on terror. We haven't learned the lessons from the cold, the post cold war era. I should say where uh, a lot of the seeds of what's going on with Russia right now were sown. How do we get that accountability? Because it sure doesn't look like congressional oversight is doing it. It doesn't look like the executives interested in it. Where's this going to come from?
0: I think, uh, I mean, I think part of it is definitely this whole like, okay, we don't want to be involved in foreign conflict mentality, um, but I think that's made us very complacent in the way we conduct foreign policy. It's made us so we don't have to commit to anything anymore. Um, and I think this put us in a very bad place. But one thing, at least in the past few days that I've seen, I think there's kind of a coalescing of support um, from both sides of the aisle around supporting Ukraine, which is, I think is definitely a departure from what we've seen over the past like five or six years. Um, which I think is very, pro- I mean, uh, very telling. I think about the direction of our the future of our foreign policy. This might be like this like a crazy idea, but I mean, I, I mean, just something as simple as like a, a ranking system every year of like, okay, this year we had a bad foreign policy year. Just something, just like at this point, just like any kind of like self awareness of like how we're conducting um, our affairs abroad. I think is important, and I just I don't think I the biggest issue is the fact that I don't. It doesn't seem like we're I mean retaining any any lessons that we we should have learned from our past errors. So, yeah, I don't know. We need, we need to change our ways. We need to be aware of where we've messed up, where we can we can have improvement, and we're just not doing that. Um, and I think it really comes down to, like, the media, civic pressure. I mean, we need answers. Uh, this is not okay.
1: Yeah, I took the angle on it back when uh, when Afghanistan collapsed and when we went through all that. I went back to the Vietnam era, and I, I drew the conclusion of, You know, the United States military did a lot of soul searching, completely retooled how they did almost everything top to bottom. And we got the military that we had through the 90s and 2000s. That was inarguably the best military in the world. Mm -hmm. But the government side of that, we never had a government process like that where the government and the foreign policy apparatus and the Defense Department wider, meaning the bureaucratic side, they didn't go through that process. And I don't know how we ever get them to do a process like that because we had the Vietnam failure. We've had successes since then, Gulf War One, but now we've had the war on terror problems. Afghanistan, we saw what happened there. Now we have this, which is fracturing NATO. And I know everybody's united now, but how long is that really going to last? Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks? I I, I, just, I, hate to repeat the question again, but if there's no accountability here, we're just going to keep doing this over and over again. And the accountability has to come through a bureaucratic section of government that has shown itself to be very resistant. Yeah,
0: I honestly think it comes from the ground up. I mean, as simple as it gets. I think that um, I mean, I guess like the war on terror stuff. You think we would have had we would have like an in place like solidified accountability structure instead. We kind of rely on these like presidential election cycles, but they're clearly ineffective in uh, mitigating any foreign policy errors. We're in the same situation, honestly. It, 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 I mean, no matter what administration you look at, we have had some major, major foreign policy disasters, and we need to we need to keep getting better. And we're just not. So I think it, it kind of starts from the bottom up. Yeah, I just, it's heartening for me. I mean, I'm early 20s and I love foreign policy. And I was hoping there's something left when I'm finally like, you know, able to be involved myself. So,
1: yeah, it's frustrating being a foreign policy person the last few years because America traditionally always has had an isolationist streak to it. But it does come in cycles where, you know, they're more involved in the world and then they kind of retreat back. We're just in historically because when you study foreign policy, you got to have your history down. We're just in a cycle where America just is not interested in foreign policy whatsoever right now. But that hurt. You, let's go back to those power uh, structures you talked about, the the power mm-hmm. dynamics. When we start out a negotiation with somebody like Vladimir Putin with, we're not going to put any troops in the field. That's a massive mm-hmm. leverage point that we just gave away for free right off the jump. And it just came out of kind of the, the predominant cycle that, of thought that we're in. We're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot on a lot of this foreign policy stuff just out of kind of. Late level laziness, aren't we?
0: Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest tells is the fact that the first sanction Biden announced, I think on what Tuesday, um, if you look at the ruble right after his announcement, it didn't really move. Um, that's crazy. It's crazy that, I mean, the, as, a, as a country, as, uh, as America, we could announce like broad, sweeping sanctions and they could have very minimal media effects um that's rarely seen so i think that just goes to show that we uh, have the right tools uh we're not good at conveying at choosing the right tool to use at the right time and then conveying how we're going to use that tool and absolutely you're 100 right there's no reason why we should ever exclude um any option i mean with the exception of the nuclear i mean that's a given i think as a civilized country but other than that like
1: yeah i agree and to, to your point, the ruble did finally collapse, but it's when Boris Johnson yeah. of the UK talked about it because mm-hmm. so much of the dirty money from the ro- Russian oligarchy that actually runs the country goes through London, but that's another matter for another day. Uh, we're talking to Cassandra Sand. When we come back on her tell after the break, we're going to get into Ukraine a little more specifically, the Russian invasion, what we got right, what we got wrong. When we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, we'll hold ourselves accountable since we're demanding that of the government we will do it of ourselves try to piece together where we're going to go from here. We'll be right back on Tell right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Tell. We're talking to our friend Cassandra Shand from Young Voices. Okay, uh, let's hold ourselves up to the fire a little bit. I went back and listened, uh, and you can on any of the podcasting platforms or the YouTube channel. Uh, you were on a couple weeks ago. We did OK on some things. We understood that this was a real threat from Vladimir Putin. We understand he was covetous of Ukraine from the Soviet era, even going back further than that, Imperial Russia, the czars. He likes to appeal to that sort of stuff. So this is a very deep thing with the history of Russia and Ukraine. We had both, I guess, hoped that this was going to be a brinksmanship thing. Clearly, that did not yeah. happen. So we were wrong there. We also hoped if he did incur, he was going to limit himself maybe to the regions that were already kind of quasi under separatist control. That's clearly not happening because he's going to drive on uh, Kiev and it looks like he's trying to get a land bridge built down to Crimea. What's a couple of things that jumped out at you that's maybe changed in the last few weeks since we've talked about this now that we have, uh, I guess, day two or three of the invasion to go off of?
0: Um. I think I mean, immediately. Right. I think his uh, Putin's anti-Naziism little justification for invading Ukraine is very interesting, given the fact that Zelensky is a Jewish. Um, That was just kind of ironic to me. Um, But I mean, and and I think in a a broader sense, I think things that jumped out to me the most are kind of like the West's reaction to this issue. Um, We had like a minor like was like um, an invasion to the east, a minor incursion. It, it created like some small sanctions on the US's part. And now what we're doing Biden announced today, his broader um, round of sanctions that I mean do not are not SWIFT sanctions and they do not punish Putin um directly. I think that was kind of a surprise to me. I I thought they would have like the Biden administration administration would have gone a little further in their immediate reaction. Um I'm surprised that I mean like I'm so I'm I'm mostly surprised actually the fact that um you see a lot of progressive groups, and you see a lot of conservative groups. Like, I mean, honestly, advocating for the same thing. They want military accountability um, with Ukraine. They they want um, they want to see change. They want to, they want to help the Ukrainian people, which I think is um, it, it's surprising. I think with uh, other conflicts, you wouldn't have seen as much bipartisan support, but this has it. So, um.
1: yeah, illawful invasion. I mean, there's just no real way. I mean, I know we got a couple of the usual suspect talking heads on certain network TV programs that are doing it. But by and large, there, there's just no defensible way for a war of aggression. It's just so obvious. I think it cuts through this stuff. The other the other thing, and I think you were right to bring it up here, the sanctions, two questions that immediately jumped to my mind is the, the administration officials on background reporters are making it very abundantly clear that they did not want to interrupt the energy flow out of Russia to Europe, which mm-hmm. I, I understand why they don't want to put your allies in a bad spot, but that's the money. So if you're going to do sanctions and don't touch that, what's the point of that? And the other one is, and we had this bizarre thing with, with President Biden taking the questions where they're straight asking him. Press actually got a little rowdy about this. Why aren't we mm-hmm. why aren't we sanctioning Vladimir Putin himself personally? By some accounts, he may be the wealthiest man in the world because of so much illicit money going through here. Yeah. Why isn't anybody why aren't we sanctioning him directly? And the president wouldn't even touch, it. like he wouldn't, he said, Well, it's on the table, but nobody will touch that one why is that
0: i i i have this like sneaking suspicion i have to actually i'm not sure which one it is either the us we know deep down that these sanctions once we, we go full all out swift sanction putin sanction everything they're going to be less effective than we're intending i think that's one consequence that um the biden administration is a little fearful fearful of because that i mean that would be logical I think that's in the back of their mind. Alternatively, I think, I, th- I think that um, there's a potential that the fact uh, the potential that in like backdoor diplomatic channels, um, Russia is hinting at some attack of some sort. That would make sense. Those, those are the only two reasons I, I, I could see where we wouldn't be a uh, sanctioning Putin. Cause other than that, like without one of those, then it, it makes, there's not really logic in our sanction strategy at all. Um, also to your previous question about things that have, have surprised me about this uh. Of the aftermath of like the initial invasion, um, is China. I did not think that China would kind of like so openly, um, uh, almost endorse Russia. China's had a, a long history of kind of remaining out of conflict. And I mean, it's, I mean, China has not pledged any military support directly, but um, it's accepting wheat now from Russia, where it previously, for I mean, a while has not out of their own like fear over like wheat, um, contaminants or whatever. But I mean, now they're like. I think that China is going to help Russia massively evade sanctions, and I think that um, one of the big effects of this conflict, I think we're going to see uh, kind of a revaluation of how the world perceives sanctions. I mean, they already have a very um, negative stereotype, but um, I think that Russia and China, in particular, have spent years trying to figure out ways to evade sanctions, um, and I think I think that might be part of the reason why we have not gotten most sanctions yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking to Cassandra Shan, two things that jumped out at me about the sanctions also was when he listed the countries involved, the two glaring uh, omissions of countries involved was China, like you said, which was not overly surprising, but the other one was India was not mentioned. Now, China, we understand what's going on. India... I get it because it's it's not only economic for them, and not only are they in a rock and a hard place because they got things like you know Pakistan and Kashmir, and then they've got you know the China influence that they're dealing with. Their entire military structure is based off Russian equipment, almost all of it. To the point that remember a couple of years ago, we we kind of did the handshake deal and, and wink, wink, nudge, nudge of we're not going to raise a stink, even though you're our ally, because you're buying stuff from. Because they'd have to restructure their entire defense system, so we kind of just look the other way mm-hmm. on that. So I kind of get that. But even if you really crack down on them and we, we saw the Soviet economy react to the London ones because all the money goes through London, if mm-hmm. India and China are not on board with these sanctions, they may hurt, but they're not going to be critical because that's a big chunk of economy and open uh, commerce that they're going to have available to them just from those two countries alone. And there's going to be all the subsidiaries that come along with it. Did that jump out at you, too, that those two nations were not mentioned?
0: Absolutely. I um yeah, it's it just uh it's increasingly concerning. I, I'm just I'm not convinced of the effectiveness of sanctions in this case. I think that um yeah, Putin invaded anyways. I think it's as simple as that. He he's known the biggest threat is us with sanctions and he's <laughs> did it anyways. I, I don't I mean I also think it's uh it was interesting today because uh um, while you while Russia's invading Ukraine, um China's done another one of the flyovers, Taiwan. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine like
1: scary times? It's scary times. In the, and mm. of course, Taiwan's a little different because it is an island. They would have to do amphibious. And it, it, that's a whole nother beast of things. Mm. But China's got their eye on other areas besides just Taiwan, too. Yeah, And the concern, too, is uh, if he doesn't stop in Ukraine, you know, does he start looking at, you know, does he start looking up in the north and start looking at Estonia and Latvia yeah. and those places? Like, well, I'd like to have them back, too, because they have been very successful countries independently. Does he start looking at other places? Um, I've been struck because I've just from observing him for a while, his demeanor on television, the way even his syntax of his speech. And I know we're working off translators, so it's a little there. He mm-hmm. looks completely different. He sounds completely different. His mannerisms are completely different. What, what does that tell you about this? Is this just him in his final form where he's just, you know, all out of F's to give and he's just being himself? Is it the pressure of it? Is something going on with him? I know there's been rumors about his health and such. Is this just in stage dictator where, you know, he's been around yes men so long that he really has lost touch with reality? What do you make of it? Because it's glaringly obvious to anybody that's watched Vladimir Putin. He is very, very different the last couple of weeks when he's appeared in public.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Actually, um, I, I thought it was interesting that he announced the invasion out of like a pre televised, uh, pre recorded television um, segment. I thought that was a uh, kind of unique in itself. Um, then again, like he's definitely been planning this invasion for a while. Um, I mean, at least since November, like, the invasion itself. Like we've been pretty confident about it for the past few months. So um, I'm not sure if anything immediate has changed with Putin, but um, no, he's a uh, Ukraine is his issue he this has been his like a uh, fixation for years um so I while well, it does come as a surprise that he has invaded I I truly did think that it would just be like kind of a rallying cry um to keep getting elected I I don't think it's as simple as just uh putting in like a new like a uh, puppet dictator in Ukraine I think that I think he wants Ukraine as part of Russia so
1: I think he does, too. And one thing that kind of gives me a little bit of hope, though, is, you know, for him to win here, he actually has to take over the country in some shape or form, even if it's through a puppet or whatever. For the Ukrainians Mm. to win, they just got to stay in the field and try to delay this thing out and make it cost the Russians enough that eventually they're going to have to pull out and stop. What kind of time frame are we realistically looking for? Would they have to hold out for weeks? Would they have to hold out for months? We know Russia's economy is going to be taking some hits here um we know that there's international pressure realistically yeah. though what's what's the time frame we're looking at that that ukraine would have to stay in the field and at least not have a total collapse of kiev or their government to really put pressure on putin and the pe- better better yet the people that putin has to listen to his oliarch buddies and that's kind of the crime syndicate that runs russia is that weeks is that months how long would they have to hold out to really get enough pressure to maybe change the dynamic here
0: it honestly really depends on what Russia decides to do next. I think that um an underrated underrated weapons in, in its arsenal. Um, I mean, thermobaric rockets, that's just crazy. I mean, can you imagine if they I mean, instead of nuclear, it's a step below nuclear, it's not chemical, it's not um biological, but there's super high power rockets that um if you're within like the vicinity of a shockwave, your lungs collapse. I mean, that's crazy, but I could I could very well see Russia kind of um pursuing that route and if if the if Russia does like kind of escalate beyond like I, I say what we now view as a like conventional military weapons um it's a whole different ball game um, and I don't think I think um, NATO might intervene the UN might intervene but the US itself will intervene and I think that um we as like uh, the West suffers from, I mean Russia has a very clear tactical and operational dominance I think already I don't think we'll be able to I think come close to that um so I don't know if it's a matter of Ukraine holding out. I, I just don't know what Russia's thinking. I mean, I mean, they've taken out a ton of sites in, in a day. Um, I think, so, what, 70 targets have been, according to Russia. Um, that That's that that's very quick. Um, kind of a surprise at, at, at Russia's ability to kind of um, enter Ukraine as quickly as it did with three different sides. I think um, Belarus, I, I think the US at the very minimum should be very hard on Belarus. Um, Like right now, I think, I don't think we're hard enough. I think it should be all over um, the news, the fact that uh, Belarus is kind of key to um, Russia's success. Um, But I think the situation is very kind of disappointing. I think if you look at the demographic uh, makeup of Ukraine, I think I've seen some estimates where it's uh, roughly 17% of the population, um, including Crimea is pro-Russia, which again, is not very much at all. Russia's in Kiev, but we, Americans we didn't really think, I mean, our, our national security um, saw Kiev's potential, but I mean, we, we didn't do anything, but we've let it happen at this point. Like we knew they were going to invade and we slapped on some small sanctions and that's kind of been it. So um, I honestly think that as a country kind of, we've kind of left Ukraine to the wolves. I, it's just sad.
1: And to, to, not to be uh, really negative here for a second, though, as much as we're talking about how bad it would be if Russia takes over Ukraine, I don't know if people have understood that if this doesn't work for Putin, this is an all or nothing move for him. If this fails and he loses face and Ukraine can at least hold out or make it very costly for him, mm-hmm. you have destabilized Russia. Uh, Belarus will probably be destabilized because not only do you have a because Putin's the only thing that held Livachenko Lev, in power. Um, so that could destabilize there's actually no good win here because either ukraine falls and the region destabilizes or russia loses face and putin's aura falls and that destabilizes everything that could actually almost be worse in some ways so there there's no good answer here this is going to go bad either which way is that is that overstating the facts though
0: no i think that's uh, pretty accurate i think uh I think for me, at least, uh, the announcement, the, the news headline, right, of uh, Ukraine's been invaded, it, it'll be go, it'll be one of those, like, moments I remember in my life, whereas where was I when I saw the uh, headlines? I think this is something that's going to, I mean, we're going to see these effects of the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis for years to come, and uh, Russia is completely responsible for everything that happens. Um, yeah, and Putin doesn't really have an option. He has to win. You're absolutely right. I mean, he... He, he can't go home to Russia with his head hanging down. He can't like, uh, yeah, he's going, he's going for the kill. I, I, I That's how it is now. When, when we were back, like discussing brinksmanship, that was a different story. But um, yeah, he's crossed the line. He's. I've, yeah.
1: I've actually worried and I, I'm just talking out loud here. I'm not so mm-hmm. understand where I'm coming from with this. If it looks like they're not going to win in Ukraine, I think that's when this gets really, really dangerous, because then what are they really capable of? Um, So just kind of something to keep in the back of their mind. We hope the Ukrainians hold them off uh, there. We'll see. This is the early stages of this thing. This is all staging right now. The real big push into the country will come probably in the next day or two militarily. So we'll have to update it then. Uh, Cassandra Shan, thank you for coming back. Uh, probably going to have to make you a regular you on this me. because we're going to have to keep talking about this for <laughs> God knows how long, because this is really going to be something that changes a lot of geopolitics for a long time to come. Uh, let folks know where they can find you on your social media and your writing stuff. You're on Young Voices with us, and we're proud to have you with us. Let people know where they can follow you and follow your work.
0: Yeah, sure thing. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Cassandra Shan. Uh, thank
1: you. Thrilled to have you back. Thank you for coming back on. Uh, we'll see how our predictions and analysis hold up here in another week or two. I, and and more. Other, we hope there's not just massive, massive bloodshed. It looks hard to avoid, but we we still hold out hope for the Ukrainian people. Yeah, we list. are
0: praying for them.
1: Yep. So. Cassandra, Sam, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate you. Welcome back to Hertel. Uh Talking about accountability a lot on this program, we do it to ourselves uh, like we did with Cassandra today. We held up a couple of places where we were wrong or got it wrong or our analysis was inaccurate. We always want to do accountability. We hold the government accountable. We hold each other accountable. We got to be accountable. So here's a story of accountability. It comes from our buddy, Brad Palumbo, who we need to get back on the show. It's been too long since we talked to him. Uh, Matt Tayabi. Uh, A well-known writer, he has a substack substack called Useful Idiots. Uh, He put out this statement. We got it from Brad Palumbo. Uh, Brad said it this way. He said, I appreciate this kind of reflection from Matt Tiabi. Lots of other pundits would move on and pretend they never said anything that has been proven wrong. Here's the note that he put out. It said, note to readers on the invasion of Ukraine. And the subtitle is a face plan of my own. This is Matt Tiabi writing February the 24th. Part of news and even commentary, this is a quote, is admitting mistakes. And though I always make sure when discussing the subject to know Vladimir Putin could still invade Ukraine, I have to admit I didn't see this happening. Some old colleagues I trust, including some Putin-critical Russians, didn't see it either. But in many cases, they just didn't want to believe it for reasons that are more understandable from their perspective. My mistake was more like reverse chauvinism, being so so fixated on Western misbehavior, that I didn't bother to take this possibility seriously enough to readers who trust me not to make those misjudgments. I'm sorry. Obviously, Putin's invasion will have horrific consequences for years to come and massively destabilize the world. I fear there will be more to say soon, but I'll leave it at that for today. When you're wrong, you're wrong. And I was wrong about this. That's Mike Tiabi releasing a statement about his pre-invasion analysis. Good for him. More of this. There's nothing wrong with just saying I got something wrong. I I really don't understand this online. Look, just admit you're wrong. New information arises. You don't have to know everything. Just say it. I got it wrong. Or new information came to light. Or I know something now I didn't know before. People will respect it for you. In fact, it'll help build rapport with folks that you're being open and honest with them. For too long, our media and social media has been absolutely obsessed with you can never be wrong. Quit worrying about being right. Worry about getting it right. Take the extra time to do things the right way. It's really not that hard, but it's very, very important. The reason we talk about accountability on this show so much, the reason we hold people accountable, everything good stems from that. We have to keep ourselves in check. It's too easy to just go flying off the handle and try to analyze the world as we wish it was instead of the way it really is. We did that here with the Ukraine invasion. We talked about it. We were hoping this was brinksmanship. We were hoping maybe it'll be a smaller incursion, not what clearly Vladimir Putin is now underway doing. That's fine. You can't read the man's mind, especially a genocidal madman who wants to kill people and oppress and take away things that belong to others. Just admit it. I was wrong. Move on. There's going to be plenty of things about Vladimir Putin and this invasion that we're all going to be wrong about because we're not dealing with people that are working off of reason. We're working off people who have decades worth of grudges and hatefulness in their heart and covetedness for this land in Ukraine and for the empire that they think in their own head they're entitled to. It's easy to get that wrong because it's hard for us to get our mind around that mindset. Just admit you're wrong and move on. Like we've been saying, when it comes to a lot of these issues, the best way to start And the best starting point for our commentary and advocacy on them is to start with, I don't know, and then work your way out from there. Keep you humble. Keep you from going down rabbit holes of making sure you're proving that you're right, which can take you from a bad opinion to a catastrophic one. Always keep yourself in check. Don't be afraid to say you don't know. Don't be afraid to say, let me find the answer to that for you and get back to you. People will respect it for you, and it'll make for a better media environment and social media environment for all of us. Whether it's a war or just the hot cultural topic of the day, we can all do a little bit better. More Herd Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. We always try to end on a little bit of an uplifting or lighthearted note, especially days like today where the news is so heavy. Uh, this comes from Gabby Diaz uh, from iHeartRadio cool little story are kids constantly distracted by instagram twitter TikTok, or other social media apps well you might want to try this method to get your child to stay off social media lorna clef uh, clef sauce i hope we're pronouncing that right from motley minnesota had a great idea to help her son stay off social media during his teen years according to fox 11 lorna offered her then 12 year old son syvert her youngest of four children 1800 dollars to stay off social media for six years He immediately agreed. Quote, I watched social media cause stress, anxiety, and hurt feelings in many other kids, and I love the idea of coming up with a way to spare Cybert from that, said Lorna. She trusted her son that he would stay off social media, but it also given him the option to quit. Cybert said it wasn't too hard to stay off social media, even though he missed out on trends and being able to connect with new people he had just met. He did learn a lot about human behavior and was thankful he didn't have to go through all the drama and negative effects that social media has had on people. At such a young age, frankly, kid, I hate to break it to you. That only comes out to like, what, a couple hundred dollars a year? Should have negotiated that up, got a little bit bigger payday for what you gave up. Just my opinion, though. Look, social media is like everything else. It's what you put into it. You want to find good people and get good information on it? You can do that. You want to be a jerk? Yell at people? Get your feelings hurt? Hurt other people's feelings? You can do that. Social media is just a tool. It's all in how you use it, much like that shovel out in the shed. You can use it to dig a well and have water, feed your family, do a garden, feed your family. You can also use it to bury the body of somebody you shouldn't have killed. The shovel don't care. It's just a tool. So social media. With great social media comes great responsibility. It's up to you whether it's a good experience or not will do it for her to tell. Uh, thankful you're joining us. It's been an insane news week with the news coming out of Ukraine. We've got all kinds of culture and politics. want to make sure we take a moment to thank our great guests. If you missed any of the guests and interviews and discussions we've had, they are fantastic. They are on the podcasting platforms and on the YouTube channel as a separate playlist. It's called Good Talks, anything with the Good Talks label. That is the interview-only portions of the segment with whatever guest is listed there. Please make sure you go listen to those. Lots of good information, things that you don't often hear talked about on any other platform. We really think you'll like it check those out. Also, full episodes are always on there. And the new episodes each and every weekday morning will pop up if you are subscribed. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing. You have your time. We will never waste it. We will always do our best to turn down the news cycle noise, and give you good information to discern the times we live in. Wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Enjoy your weekend. We will be right back here Monday. For more Tell. Take care. All the music on Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans
0: live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed
1: with a mental illness in their lifetime.